dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Well, Dr. Willie Jennings, thank you so much for joining us here on Pass the Mic, sir. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, there's quite a bit that I want to discuss with you today, but it would be remiss of me not to mention this week's tragic ruling, uh, non-indictment regarding the case of Breonna Taylor. And so, Dr. Jennings, I just wanted to give you the space to, to speak to that, the tragedy of it, before we get into the book and all the wonderful ideas that you're talking through. What does this say about our society that we're once again here mourning uh, a lack of justice? Well, it says a couple of things that I think many of us are aware of. One is the pain that so many folks of color, African-Americans, Black folks, are feeling at this moment. And um, it also points to the frustration that's that's woven into that pain. And it again reminds us of the crucial choice we have to make at this moment. Either we continue to fight forward, push forward, or we fall into the despair that is all around us. And I'm always, I'm always reminded of those who went before us who um, setback after setback could yet, could yet get up in the morning, fix breakfast for themselves and their family and uh, start the day. And so, you know, I'm, I'm bolstered by that legacy. But this is, this is an unprecedented time for us. And my hope is that so many people who consider themselves allies of Black folks would um, see this as a, a profound call to them to step out of the ordinary, out of their ordinary ways of being and into um, a new way of being that would join with us to overcome um, what, you know, is in fact the deepest, the deepest legacy of America, which is hatred of black bodies. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. What a word. What an important word to hear. And it ties into our topic of discussion today, which is your most recent book, After Whiteness and Education in Belonging. And to be clear, it is a book about Western theological education, as you say, between the times. But we believe there are a myriad of application points for us outside of those ivory towers. Mm-hmm. And one of the points that I want to discuss is this idea of whiteness. Mm-hmm. And why did you choose whiteness? Why whiteness? And why is it important for us in Western Christian spaces to analyze and address what whiteness is and its effects on us? Well, we are the, we who are Christian and the, the, the re- reality of Christianity is what gave birth to whiteness. This is the most important thing that so many people don't understand. Um, whiteness would not exist had it not been for the womb of Christianity. And Christianity gave birth to whiteness um, inside of a new way of seeing the world and a new way of being seen in the world. And, and whiteness has to be understood not as biology, <laughs> not, not as culture, um, but as a choice, a way of life that one steps into. And the reason we have to understand it that way is because there was a time in this world, there was a time in this country when uh, people would not have imagined themselves white. 
white was an achievement to be gained as one stripped away one's immigrant past coming to these shores and wanting to present oneself as acceptable and as someone not only acceptable, someone for, to whom violence should not be brought. So whiteness is an anchoring reality for the formation of race as we know it. And the difficulty for so many Christians is that, especially Christians shaped in whiteness, is that they've never in their lives had to think who they are uh, separately or apart from a white identity, racial identity, and whiteness. Now, for people of color, we, we've, we've been doing this all our lives. Whether a person is of Asian descent or Filipino or African-American, Latinx, all of us have gone and continue to go through the painful process of trying to pull apart the uh, who we are from the constellation of stereotypes and images and ideas and philosophies about that are derogatory to our very existence. And to go through the painful process of pulling that apart from us and pulling out from inside those stereotypes and images and gestures and derogatory ideas, pulling out the, the, little, the little pieces of truth that have been, that have been so weak, woven inside that derogatory view that it takes incredible energy, patience, and focus to, to pull out the, what is true from the garbage that's there. So all of us have engaged in a process of separating who we are from um, the derogatory vision of blackness. And in, for African-Americans, we have actually done even more. We've, we've taken the derogatory and turned it on its head and made blackness something more, something beautiful. But that something more, that something beautiful has not negated the important work that we all continue to do to separate ourselves from the, the, the derogatory stereotypical realities that are often tried to be placed upon us as we think about blackness. Now, the reason I say all that is because what's so important is that whiteness was imagined as a wonderful achievement. And so for so many people, especially Christians, they've never had any need nor any desire <laughs> to want to separate themselves from the positivity that is whiteness. And so for so many, anytime, you, you know, if, if you say the word whiteness or I say the word whiteness and we talk about critique, many feel personally attacked. They feel like we're, we're engaging in a form of hate speech because we are calling into question whiteness and pointing out that whiteness is a way of being in the world that is detrimental to the world. Why is it detrimental? Because it's built upon, as I talk about in this book, it's built upon the propagation and the cultivation of a way of being in the world that seeks control, possession, and mastery of this world. Hmm. 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 My goodness. Wow. There's so much <laughs> in that. Oh, my goodness. But you mentioned this idea of white people not ever having to reckon with this idea of whiteness as identity mm -hmm. and not have to see that and address that. So as a follow-up, is it possible for us to have 
meaningful, substantive, equitable relationships, not just individually, but culturally and systemically, if whiteness is not addressed. As you know, we've been having this ongoing conversation within the church since 2012, 2014-ish about racial reconciliation, shifting to racial justice. It it has a myriad of, of different movements and different spaces, depending on the denomination you're a part of. But is it possible for us to make any progress if we're not addressing the ever-present reality, as you say, of whiteness? Well, what's good about these efforts is that they are, they are moving in the right direction. But the analogy I would use is that they're walking when they could get in cars and go a little faster. And in this regard, you, you're exactly right that until people start to understand what whiteness is, and it's kind of theological, it's Christian root, they will never really come to the heart of the matter. And this is why for so many people um, to, to make use of the idea of reconciliation at this moment, it's really unhelpful. I mean, I, I've been among those who have questioned the, the deployment of the idea. Now, of course, we all believe, we are Christian, we all believe in reconciliation. So it's not a question of disbelieving reconciliation. The issue is how do we use, how do we make use of that idea, that reality that is a part of our faith in ways that honors it and not abuses it? And unfortunately for so many, the idea of reconciliation, to, 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 put, uh, to put it crudely but, but succinctly, uh, it's uh, it's a foil for constantly reestablishing the status quo, and unfortunately, until until we can start to take seriously the undoing of whiteness as a desired way of being in the world, we're we're going to be stuck walking instead of riding. Wow, such a poignant analogy. You know, this book, again, is is primarily addressing the academy and theological education. In the description, it even says that after whiteness is for anyone who has ever questioned why theological education still matters. And you even mention in the book that there's a difference between the academy and the church. They're different institutions designed to do different things. But from your place in the academy, how does whiteness play into spiritual formation in the church? And I think for some people, they'll approach this book or reject it or won't listen to it because it's in a different context than from where they are. And so they say, I'm not in theological education, but theological education still affects how our churches run and are formed in spiritual formation in the context of those local communities. So how does whiteness play into our spiritual formation in a local body of believers? Well, the, the, there are there are two crucial points of connection that this book is making that, that speaks directly to your question. The first is that uh, it understands theological education as a reality inside the wider reality of Western education. And mm-hmm. so anybody who's being educated in the West is inside this problem that I talk about in the book. So there's already an automatic connection with education. But it, it also ties directly into how we understand leadership and forming people to be leaders in our communities and how we understand what are the 
particular skills and capacities that we want leaders to have. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, it ties in directly, directly to the problems, both in the academy and in the church. That is to say, it ties directly into all institutions in the West. Here's the problem for us. Institutions in the Western world, and by institutions, I mean, again, I mean not only um, schools, but I mean churches, and I mean businesses and so forth. Institutions in the West are shaped within what I name in the book as a pedagogy of the plantation. Hmm. Now, what do I mean by that? Education in the Western world was formed. Education as we as we come into the colonial period, as we come to the new new places where um, people who we later on will call Europeans come in uh, Africa and should I say the lower the sub-Saharan parts of Africa, Latin America, uh, the many Pacific Islands, North America, Canada, as as people come and form and start to form life. The, the plantation, the uh, compound that is set up to um, exploit the natural resources, to grow crops, to um, find slaves and then use slaves, all of these places set up educational enterprises. And it is these educational enterprises that are set up to train the next generation and how to handle the power and the responsibility of owning these new worlds. Hmm, hmm. So what's, what's at the heart of that? What's at the heart of that is how to train the youth, primarily the, the young men, on how to be masters. <laughs> how to be masters. My goodness. And that, that training in how to be master, how to uh, control your world, how to handle the possession of this new world, becomes an incredible engine in the shaping of what education will look like in the new world. And as I say in this book, education in the new world is formed is formed inside one overarching aspiration that works itself into one overarching image of what an educated person ought to look like. And that person is a self-sufficient white man Hmm. who embodies Hmm. three, what I call demonic virtues, (laughs) possession, mastery, and control. Possession, mastery, and control. The idea is to form this self-sufficient man who is not given to extremes of emotion, not given to extremes of reaction, no matter what he faces, is cool in the face of chaos, is clear and concentrated, focused on the task, and who is able to marshal his mastery of knowledge, his self-control, and his possession of the materials in front of him to accomplish any task, that this man is able to allow himself to be drawn into a task or a world greater than himself, mm-hmm. which always shows his own power. And in having power, he never apologizes for it because he uses it properly. 
He does not apologize for his strength. He does not apologize for his power. He does not apologize for his ability to lead. He simply does it. But he does it in a way in which it's not prideful, but nor is it overly humble. And this idea of the self-sufficient man is at the very heart of the entire educational endeavor of the West. And of course, what does that mean for those who lead churches? They are also shaped. (laughs) They are also shaped by this aspiration. And so when we say leadership, often in the church or in the academy, we are still shaped by the same aspiration, and we basically mean the same thing. Of course, this has worked itself out in some very tragic ways in the church, as we know. It has Mm -hmm. worked itself out in the continuing nurturing and promotion of a misogynistic vision of leadership in the church, a masculinist way of functioning either in the pulpit or in the church office, Uh, a way of looking at the world in which your ability to control, your ability to master, your ability to possess is the direct indicator of whether you should be in leadership. And in such a view, how do you look at people? People Mm -hmm. are tools, tools to be used to accomplish a task. This episode is brought to you in part by Baker Publishing Group. Most of us don't want to spend our lives being time wasters, space takers, binge watchers, or game players. We want to be difference makers. But maybe we make changing the world a little more complex than it really is. Making a difference isn't measured by a viral post or a name on a building. It isn't determined by a following or a fan base. Want to make a difference? Focus on just one person at a time. That's the secret of the way of Jesus. In his newest book, One at a Time, Kyle Eidelman invites us to better understand the surprising habits of Jesus and the power of small things done with great love. He challenges true disciples to fully commit to the unexpected Jesus way of changing the world by loving people one at a time. Baker Bookhouse is pleased to partner with Christianity Today to offer a special discount on your copy of One at a Time. Visit bakerbookhouse.com by February 28th, 2022 and use promo code 12022. That's O-N-E-2022 to receive 40% off with free shipping. And I want to read this quote because I think it really encapsulates what you're talking about uh, directly from the book. You you say, and I quote, white self-sufficient masculinity is the quintessential image of an educated person, an image deeply embedded in the collective psyche of Western education and theological education, flexible enough to capture and persuade any and all persons so formed to yield to it. Now, that's my question leading from this. We see this, yet we yield to it. Why? And especially, why do people of color yield to this if it's clear to see that this is the quintessential image of an educated person or a person in leadership in the academy or in the church institutions. Well, and and, and let's be clear, by anybody we mean men and women. 
Yes, yes. Any ethnic group. And the reason why we yield to it is because it is both attractive and effective. You know, we Mm -hmm. often criticize Mm -hmm. the idea of individualism. But when it comes to thinking about how we exhibit the the educated state, how we exhibit work well done in whatever form of education we've gone through, um, it comes back to not only an unrelenting, incipient individualism, but it comes back to this man, showing that we can do what this man has promised could be done in order to achieve what we want to achieve. Remember, the self-sufficient man is one, the aspiration for him is tied to possession, is tied to control, and it's tied, it really is tied to an imperial desire to own and run your world. Hmm. Hmm. This is why it's so attractive. We yield to it because ultimately it has become the vehicle of some of our most profound dreams about the good life. Hmm. Wow. Uh, Well, if you are listening in, obviously we're talking with Dr. Willie Jennings about his most recent book, After Whiteness, and there's so much to unpack, so much to dive in. I want to talk a little bit about this idea of fragments. You talk quite a bit about how we all work in the fragments, and particularly for people of color, the fragment formed of colonial power. And you say many of us work in fragments trying to tie together, hold together the witness of our peoples. And it's ironic because that's literally what we are attempting to do here at The Witness as an organization. Mm -hmm. But how do we hold these fragments together, especially if the theological institutions and churches that we rely on are unable to comprehend them? So how do we hold our fragments together and this is just one of three different fragments that you talk about in the book, but this one in particular resonated with me because we're attempting to try to hold together the witness of our people. And you said that's holy work. That's important work. How can we do that if we can't rely on our institutions or our churches to comprehend the way in which they're using their power? Well, this is, this is, a, this is an important question, and it's, it's, um, it's very difficult for us because even to understand that we're, we are in fragment work is a new thought for so many people. Um, the fragment work that you're speaking of is the, the work of trying to take hold of, t- trying to recover uh, what was lost uh, in, in, the great, you know, in the great journey across the Atlantic Ocean, what was lost in the breaking up of families, what was lost in the destruction of communities and, and villages and tribes, what was lost in the mm-hmm. breaking of families, what was lost in the practices and ways of touching the earth, of caring for animals, of fixing our food, what was lost in the breaking of the drum, what was all of that and the, the shards, the pieces, the slices that are that are there laying around that have to be pulled back together. And so many people sense the need to try to pull together. It, it is being done. The problem is, is that it's not being noticed, my dear brother. It's not being noticed. Hmm. And it hasn't been, it's not being thought about theologically. It's not being thought about as Christian. 
you know, for so many people because of the horror of assimilation that's often been tied to Christianity. They were taught not only should you ignore the fragments, but if you find them, bury them as quickly as you can. Bury those fragments, mm. bury the little pieces that would remind people of African descent of ways of being in the world that preceded, you know, the great, the great, tra- the great travel here. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Th- what that means for us is that um, churches and schools have to, first of all, see it as see it as a tragedy that we that by, by we I mean Christianity caused, and then see it as our responsibility to um, gather the fragments that remain. Like mm-hmm. you know, I, I use the example in the book of uh, Jesus breaking the bread and the the fishes yes. and the loaves. Yes. And then after all, everyone had eaten, he said, now gather the fragments together, gather them together, that none of it will be lost, gather it together. And so there's a gathering together that, that needs to happen. It can be done because, as I said, the first fragment that we work with is the fragment that is our faith. That is, our faith mm-hmm. comes to us in fragments. Mm-hmm. We don't have every word that Jesus ever said. We have fragments. We don't have every word that the disciples ever said. Ever said. We have fragments. Any church teacher from the very beginning up to now, we don't have everything that they said and thought. We have fragments. The Bible is fragments. Um, The prayers, the prayers that are passed on, the songs that are passed on, the gestures that are passed on, the practices that are passed on are all fragments. But we've learned how to, first of all, unearth them. Then we've learned how to handle them. And we've learned in many cases, how to join parts of them together. Well, that skill needs to now be tied to gathering the fragments of people of color who have been who have been torn into little pieces, the pieces of our past, the pieces of our history, voice, sound, music, um, cooking, moving, dancing, to weave those fragments together with the fragments that are our faith, but also to weave our fragments to other people's fragments. Hmm. So um, those who are Christian, who are in other parts of the world, who are also trying to overcome the colonial shattering of their worlds, to weave their fragments to our fragments, to enter into this holy quilt work out of which all our voices will speak together in new strength. That should be the goal. But as but as you said in your as you asked me in your question, how can we do this when so many people don't even know it's work that needs to be done? And of course, as I'm pointing out in this chapter, this is part of the problem, not only of um, theological education but of Western education. It mm-hmm. ignores the fragment work that. It has, it has caused to needed to that needs to be done. Yeah, and and to make that personal, what what was so striking about this idea of fragments and also burying them is the way in which I engaged in theological education and what most people think about when they when they think about evangelical or white evangelical theological education. It, it was 
it was built upon the restriction of how I could use my body, what I could talk about, what I could say in the early parts of my theological education, what music we could listen to in a very you know independent fundamental Baptist space. And so it's really fascinating to hear you talk about gathering the fragments when it seems as though the fragments are consistently buried and trying to be hidden from us, which is part of our heritage, which is part of who I am. And so now I'm trying to figure out what does it look like to regather these fragments. So I just want to encourage people to read that chapter because it is striking. And I think many of us will find personal applications to it. I have to get to my favorite chapter, Dr. Jennings, and that is Buildings. Um, I'm sorry. Were you going to say something? Go ahead. If you were going to say something, go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. I'll figure out how to say it with the buildings chapter. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm so sorry. I can hear you. Um, (laughs) I have to talk about buildings, and this was an awakening. I remember standing up reading this chapter. Uh, It was phenomenal. You talk about again the racial paterfamilias. That is the rule of the plantation father over the family in the slave system. And you assert that, and I quote, all theological education in the Western world is haunted by this illustration, an illustration you give early in the chapter, a plantation at worship and an enslaved preacher. Then you go on to say, slavery taught us how to build. It taught us how to build a home, how to build a church, how to build a school, how to build a person. Slavery took a theological truth that the creature builds, gave thanks for it, broke it into pieces and forced us to eat the stones. These are the stones that the builders did not reject. My goodness. <laughs> wow. Please talk a little bit more about this concept of slavery's integration into how we build. This was, I mean, moved my soul and unlocked so many things in my heart. Please talk about this and our integration, the integration of slavery and how we build. Yeah. And this, this ties into the pedagogy of the plantation I mentioned earlier, but at heart, what what um, this points to is the um, distortion of our institutional imaginations of what it means to to build a thing, uh, to build a thing toward life, and what what has happened to us, what's happened to our institutional imaginations, how we build things, how we build a church, how we build an organization, how we build a community, how we build a school. What's happened to us is that we we have been shaped inside a distorted reality of building that has at its center the formation of the master and the desires of the master so that our, our operations of building things already always lean toward thinking of people as slaves, thinking of people as tools, and thinking of those who lead as masters, calling the shots. And so institutions, if they have not understood the racial paterfamilias, will always be haunted by him and always form people who ultimately are him. Hmm. And for so many, for so many people, I mean, when, when folks read that book and they see that image, I think it, it will strike them immediately what's being said. That um, for so many people, 
who inhabit institutions. What, what they sense, they don't know how to name it very often, but they sense that there's a sickness operating in this institution. Hmm. And they're not, they're, you know, they call it various things, but they're just not quite sure what it is that, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's seen in sometimes how people are treated. It's seen how certain people are, are promoted. It's seen in how um, people interact. It's seen in how power is, uh, functions and how people with power are treated. And there's, there's a sickness whether it's a church or the academy, or and but they don't know what exactly they is, what exactly it is. And many just say, well, okay, this is just the way the world is. This is just business. This is just the way it is. But what it is, my dear brother, is it's haunted hmm. by the spirit of the racial paterfamilias, hmm. of an entire reality that is set up to ultimately make that man appear and that's that that's driving so much of it of institutional life and that's why many people know this and and, um i've watched this for many years there are many people who work in churches or who work in um, the academy whether it's the theological academy or university academy and um they they carry a, a a deep melancholy about working there hmm because they know that there's a side of it that is something called just business. And hmm. cold, a focused coldness that is a part of the business. And many people operate in what I call the sick wisdom of, of um, understanding that business is just business. And sometimes you, you have to function in this coldness because this is how we get things done without realizing that, no, what, what you really are functioning in is the pedagogy of the plantation, is the reality of the racial paterfamilias, of a world that's organized around the master's wishes to be productive and efficient and willing your body, your mind, and your spirit to enter fully into that reality. This is another part of the sickness of whiteness that that we often um, accept. We accept this, and we accept this uh, in order for something to be efficient and um, something to be successful in hmm. terms of institution. Wow. Um, you, you know, you mentioned it, it specifically calling it a diseased institutional unconscious, <laughs> which is a phenomenally vivid way of seeing how it works itself out and the, the thing underlying that we know and we can sense and we can feel, but we can't quite put our finger on. A, a couple of more questions before I let you go. What do you think is the role of people of color in order to identify and in order to help those who are operating in this, you know, what you call this white self-sufficient masculinity whoever they may be, which could be a person who considers themselves to be white or a person of color, what is the role of, of, of us to invite people to see themselves and to invite people to, to basically turn the mirror towards them and say, you are the man? <laughs> what is the role? Is it for us to make that declaration and that confrontation? Or is it for us to build systems, 
separate from them and invite them to join with us in in that quilt you know building as you mentioned earlier or, or is it something in between or something I'm not considering well the 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 way out <laughs> the way out of this um trajectory this escalator um down into <laughs> the white self-sufficient man uh requires people to um enter into two kinds of recognition <clears throat> the first the first is the um the the individualism the aloneness that is so much a part of this um if you anyone who's been in the academy or even in you know even the church as you've lived in the church what you realize is that we're often tormented by what i call a sick morbid introspection of always questioning our ability to to do what we're we're doing Hmm. and always having it questioned. And that questioning coming from the outside and coming from the inside. Well, to recognize that that is going on is already a first step to ask a different question. And that is, what, what should be the central characteristic of someone who is, quote unquote, performing well, having shown um, a solid education? What, what should be the central characteristic of it? And what I'm arguing in the book is that the central characteristic of it is how to draw people together, that the person is able to, in a sense, create belonging in whatever they do. Mm. They, are, they are drawing people together. And that is the fundamental context within which excellence is to be evaluated. This is not to say that they, they can't do things, but the doing of things is inside a larger recognition that the person in whatever they do builds community, draws people together, creates deeper realities of belonging in what they do. And it's it's that barometer, if you will, that uh, we need as a way to challenge in ourselves, but then also in the way we look at one another, what it means to be doing our work together. Now, of course, you know, what I'm what I'm going after are um, all those educators who um, both knowingly and unknowingly turn people toward um, the endeavor to become self-sufficient men. And so I'm going after those folks to say, you know, there's a different direction we ought to be turning people. But we have to turn ourselves there first. And the way we turn ourselves there first is to recognize that we we have been formed to um, to live in this isolating individualism that has built a form of evaluation and self-evaluation that is killing us. Hmm. And that hmm. for so many people, uh, especially so many people I meet, uh, they are they are caught in this deep morbid introspection and this way of being in the world that they constantly have to war against because their own evaluative lenses are cutting them to pieces instead of enabling them to see the world 
as a site for life together and for gathering. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. So much to think in uh, and sit in and think on. I guess my last question is, what's the affirmation for those of us who are trying to experience life after whiteness, uh, theology after whiteness, belonging after whiteness, as you're mentioning? What's your advice to us and what's the affirmation that we should keep in mind, particularly, and, and I'll speak, I'll localize it because we talk most often to Black Christians. What is What is your encouragement to us as we navigate the fragments and the buildings and the motions as we try to cultivate and create belonging apart from the white self-sufficient man. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the thing I always want to say to folks is that God is always calling us, always calling us to new realities of belonging with those around us, always calling us and granting us the power, the power to heal and the power to be healed as we answer that call that we can we can create deeper realities of belonging with people um, beyond our beyond our own ability to think it that God can draw us imagine into a deeper imaginative reality uh, or should I say a different imagination that creates a reality of belonging. And I think the challenge for us is to yield to the Spirit and trust God to lead us into that, that we can become people who, in doing that, in yielding, can walk away from, you know, what I see for so many people, the the, the um, torturous, tormenting reality of evaluation, self-evaluation, that constantly dogs so many of us living as we are and still inside of a white world and a white aesthetic. And so the challenge for us is to hear the Spirit of God calling us to a new reality of forming belonging that breaks change, that opens doors, that frees us to love ourselves and others even more deeply. And to see that at the center of our work and the center of excellence in our work. Well, the book is After Whiteness, and our guest has been none other than Dr. Willie Jennings. Dr. Jennings, you are a gift to us, and this time has been a gift to me and to so many others. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Glad to be with you.